Okay, yeah, so I've started recording and feel free to introduce yourself. Okay, excellent. Uh, yeah, uh, hello, uh, I'm Sushovan, Sushovan Dhar from India. I'm from the eastern part of uh, India. I stay in the city called Calcutta, officially called Kolkata, of course. I have been a member of uh, CADCM, that's the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt uh, for, the last, uh, for the last two decades. Huh? We are a part of one of the, one of the biggest, uh, largest network campaigning for the cancellation of debt. Uh, now, as you know, uh, CADCM, the acronym in French was basically Comité pour l'annulation de la dette du tiers monde, which meant uh, it was the Committee for the Cancellation of Third World Debt. Uh, because it started with the campaign of third world debt, because uh, in the 80s, we had a terrible debt crisis along the world. We had a Brazilian uh, debt crisis, the Mexican debt crisis, with the Southeast Asian crisis of uh, 1997. Uh, and therefore, uh, there was this, uh, some campaigns which uh, gathered around. It was basically started by uh, some of our friends in Belgium, uh, in France, and in other parts of Europe. Uh, and there was a famous Bastille appeal, which united a lot of movements, which started calling for the debt cancellation of third world countries, uh, of quote unquote third world countries. Uh, and then from there it started and uh, uh, over a period of time, CRTM has grown as one of the uh, networks which is present in uh, mainly four continents, uh, uh, Europe, uh, Asia, Africa, and South America. So uh, we have members from around the 35 countries around the world. Uh, well, of course, it's a theory, and let me clarify that we are not an NGO, we are not a think tank, uh, we are not a, uh, a policy research advocacy organization. We are a campaign group. We are a political campaign group which campaigns about, and intervenes, of course, I'll come to that later, on the cancellation of, for, the, for the cancellation of debt. Now, over a period of time, you know, how did it become from the cancellation of the third world debt? How did it transform it, itself or evolve into the committee for the uh, cancellation of illegitimate debt? Uh, as you, as you know, that we, when we, when, uh, I mean, during our work, we also saw that debt as a mechanism is not only exploitative; is not limited to the exploitation or oppression of countries. It also exploits individuals in many forms. Of course, you know, when you have an external debt and all this for sovereign debt, it impacts the population as it's happening in Sri Lanka, Ukraine, Argentina, at this point of time, very crucially, it's happening in many other parts, in Mozambique, in Ghana, to say. I mean, there, there's a time bomb is ticking about the debt about which can, we can just discuss in a bit of details later on. Uh, we also came forward that there are individual debts and which is equally oppressive. For example, the student debt in the United States. Japan, right? United States, the prime case of student debt. You have the peasant debt, for example, in India. 400,000 farmers have committed suicide in the last 27 years. Uh, you have the whole racket of what is called microcredit, something that was supposed to help the poor, something that was supposed to emancipate the poor woman. But what we have seen, it started in Bangladesh and something around 78, and has spread to many parts of the third world. And it's equally oppressive and people are subjected to exorbitant rates of interest, poor people subjected to exorbitant rates of interest and there have been horrible consequences. So as we went on, we decided that we should take up this issues of personal debt, which is uh, very important because as CRTM, we're not a single issue movement and we don't think that you know uh, the issue of debt can only be solved by campaigning against debt. There's a host of other factors including, you know, the social structure, the social systems and many other things, including capitalism first that we have to campaign all around. Speak about the environment, speak about women's rights, you know, feminism, and many things combined together. And debt uh, is there everywhere. So we took up these issues and we, are, we also do, uh, unlike, uh, there are many, of course, many of other groups uh, can, campaigning on the debt issue, but a few which uh, combines both the private and the public illegitimate debt. So we kept our acronym as it is because in the meantime, we were quite known and it acquired a degree of goodwill and reputation. So, but we renamed ourselves, you know, around seven, eight years, 10 years back, uh, the process went 10 years back. It's now called the Committee of for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt. Uh, it's presented, as I told you, seven European countries, seven Latin American countries, uh, six, seven Asian countries, South Asia and Japan. Uh, we have contacts in Philippines, Indonesia and other places. Uh, Europe as well, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, Belgium, France, uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, Portugal, Spain. Uh, as you might know, the Podemos, the whole movement started with the debt, the huge debt crisis that 
mainly personal debt, uh, which uh, affected the people there. So this is roughly about uh, Theory TM, and one of the, I mean, we have intervened in a number of places from Africa to from South America. In fact, uh, one of our comrades, uh, Eric Toussaint, he was recently in Argentina, uh, campaigning against uh, the, uh, the, uh, the court with the IMF uh, that the Argentine government has recently entered. Uh, we can send you links and you can find more details about it, what the situation there and what we feel about it. We just uh, uh, are into, uh, I have been, I'm, I'm, I'm very personally involved in this campaign of the cancellation of Sri Lankan debt. Uh, as you might be, I don't know how much of the press uh, the, in the United States, of course, the Financial Times is covering it. I, I follow it. But other press, I don't know. Uh, how much are they covering about the Sri Lankan situation? It's really an awful situation. Uh, examinations could not be held because of a lack of paper. The Sri Lankan government doesn't have the money to import paper. So examinations couldn't be held. Huh? So that's one of the tip of the iceberg. The people are in the streets. Uh, there's been the emergency, uh, but you know people defied that. So there's a threat of uh, uh, army, but anyway. So <clears throat> we have been involved in a number of campaigns, but the most, no most notable campaigns that we can say, you know, or you can call it a five-star campaign, had been our engagement with the Ecuadorian government in, from 2007 till 2010, that the Ecuadorian government also did a debt audit committee. And with the help of that committee, and with the help of the recommendations and the findings of the committee, it was, it was able to partially cancel some of its debt. We have also in the past been uh, advocates. We have worked in, in close links with a lot of uh, Latin American leaders, you know, people like Chavez, uh, people like uh, Lula, uh, the ultimate conclusion had always not been the way that we wanted, uh, but nevertheless, uh, there has always been an attempt. Uh, the other notable uh, success, quasi uh, success, if you may call it, you know, partial success, if you may call it, has been in Greece uh, when you know the Syriza, because the Syriza they won the Thessaloniki program of Syriza. It was uh, one of the one of the main slogan, one of the main points of the Thessaloniki program was. Uh, that they will not, uh, they will cancel the uh, the debt. Uh, they will not pay the debt which Greek state was having. Uh, so, uh, at the initiative of the president of the Greek uh, Parliament, Zoe Constantinopoulou, uh, there was a debt audit committee, and a number of uh, the CRTM members were there in the committee. We helped, and we had an interim finding. Unfortunately, with the political turnaround, you know, Theresa turning the other way. Uh, this committee was disbanded uh, and its recommendations, the committee would not work uh, till, till the desired extent. And uh, we have not been able to revive and neither followed the recommendations of the committee. We have an interim report of 64 pages. Uh, many more documents were to be scrutinized to come up with uh, uh, evidences and strong arguments that why should the Greek debt be canceled? And it's also based on jurisprudence and international law. It's not just uh, an aspirational statement. Huh? Of course, the cancellation of debt is aspirational at the point of time, but there are other technical issues, there are other legal issues that can also be dealt with. So this is roughly, uh, and we collaborate with various social movements uh, around the world in different places, locally, regionally, internationally, continentally, globally, uh, uh, to, to, to actually make the world a better place to live in. Yeah, this is roughly what I can say about this. Well, thank you so much. It's a great introduction. Uh, it's an amazing organization. And I'd like to dive into a little bit more about explaining how uh, Global North uses debt uh, against the Global South. So can you explain a little bit more about how these debts are imposed by the IMF you mentioned, for example, working now in Argentina, how they're used as a vice grip and, and how they play in modern imperialism? I think if you, if you, I mean, this debt has been historic. Subjugation and debt has been historic for the Roman times. Uh, Marx notes in, uh, in the first uh, volume of Capital, uh, chapter 30 or 20, uh, 30 or 31, depending on which edition you take, uh, the, the chapter is The Making of Industrialist Capitalist, uh, where Marx uh, speaks about uh, how uh, England was uh, you know, pushing debt to India, the colony at that point of time, one of the prime colonies, India. and what happens in subjugation. Rosa Luxemburg speaks about uh, the whole series of debts, how the Ottoman Empire, subjugation of Egypt, many other places. She worked in much more details on the question of debt. So debt has been a historic, uh, it, it's a tool of exploitation. It's just not economics, it's a tool of exploitation. You achieve a lot of things. Countries uh, that have actually paid, or regions, lands, uh, that have actually, territories, have actually paid many times that they had actually borrowed. 
but it still continues. Now, when it comes to the question of World Bank and IMF, as you know, the World Bank and the IMF are actually the ideological guru of uh, the neoliberal capitalism, of course, of capitalism, that it was started, it started in a different fashion, the revival of capitalism after the devastation of the war, Nazism and many other things. And over a period of time, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brutal it's a ideological guru of the uh, sort of a, of a, sort of, a, of modern aggressive neoliberalism. Uh, so the World Bank and the IMF, uh, I mean, let's differentiate the number and how it loans. Right? The IMF and the World, the IMF lends, uh, is a current account lending. It doesn't do project lending. So it lends to countries, its member countries, whenever there's a shortfall of their current account situation where they lack, uh, you know, enough uh, foreign currency to import, just as it's been doing Argentina or Sri Lanka. So now, what they do is that is whenever they do that, they do it also with a set of conditions. These are the conditionalities imposed by the IMF. Same for the World Bank. The World Bank does project lending. The World Bank, as you know, is an umbrella of five organizations that we call the World Bank Group. And uh, the most uh, visible ones are, which does the lending businesses, International Bank of Reconstruction Development, IBRD. And then you have IDA, International Development Assistance. And then, of course, you have IFC, International Financial Corporation, Finance Corporation, which lends to private sector entities. Uh, IBRD and IDA, they lend to sovereign states. Uh, now, the World Bank and the IMF together, and of course, they have their uh, other affiliates, uh, regional affiliates, continental affiliates, like the Asian Development Bank here, uh, you have the Inter-American Development Bank, and then you have the African Development Bank. And whenever they do so, they do with a series of conditionalities, which are absolutely linked with neoliberalism. You know, privatization of basic services, casualization of labor, precarization of labor, you know, downsizing labor. Various things, various, I mean, whatever you see of neoliberalization that comes with the World Bank conditionalities, it's easy to impose. Uh, it's easy to impose in that manner because one is, of course, uh, the states are in a desperate situation. They borrowed from the World Bank, but that's a different situation. Where that, that's a different question. Whether they need to borrow at all from the World Bank? Uh, of course, the ruling elites of different countries of the Third Bank, of the Third World, have the interest tied to the World Bank. So what we have seen is a sort of a, of a if you can see the the, the the how how has debt accrued over the period? You know, how do you accrue debt uh, normally? If there's sufficient production, let's assume uh, an economic scenario with a sufficient production to feed enough a population. And so you have equally you know, number of people who can do that and you know, people get paid and they're happy. That's how the economy should work. But what happens is states do borrow. Now states do borrow for different reasons. Number one, Sri Lanka was just borrowing. If I take the case of Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka was just borrowing in reckless mega infrastructure project called White Elephant Project, that we call White Elephant Project. Now, these are projects which have limited benefits for the population, but they immensely favor the capitalist class because that brings in money. Project brings in money. Project brings in contracts. It's a lot of money being spent there. But that happens at the extent of the debt. While the entire population, for example, I mean, if you take the case of the famous Inga Dam of Congo in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, there were several studies and findings which showed that, you know, a radius of around, I don't know, 100 kilometers around the Inga Dam has no electricity. Well, it's a huge mega project which is, you know, created to the White Elephant Project, so basically White Elephant Project, uh, to, to create, uh, created for power generation. Uh, the point is that there are projects borrowing. Then uh, this government also, I mean, as you can see, you know, with neoliberalism, states have moved away from what we used to call in those days, import substitution which was also the key to uh, Britain or the United States or France and the major uh, capitalists, which are imperialist nations. Uh, they're going, and Britain, Britain adopted, so, I mean, that's the type of productionism that Britain adopted. This capitalism was at a nascent stage. It's unthinkable now. Now, in the name of free trade, you dump, you dump on countries, you dump on countries. So that's one, that, that's where it starts accruing debt, huh? because you don't have sufficient exports to pay for your imports. Number one. There's another, I mean, there are various dynamism. I don't know if you can, if we can cover everything in a single interview, but nevertheless, I'll try to get into the salient points, you know, the major highlights. So the second is now, what has been done, the whole global capitalist system has encouraged certain countries of the South to specialize in certain 
commodity exports. So you have a specialization of commodity exports, okay? And then on commodity exports. Now, now, this is a very problematic thing. When the, number one, when you, commodity exports means there's no value addition in the local country. You do your exports and, and you know, finally, the, in the United States or Japan or what we call the triad, United States, Canada, or uh, Western Europe, European Union, as of understand today, uh, and Japan, things are manufactured there and they're imported back to the federal countries. That's number one. Secondly, now, when you have an export and there's a fall in the value of the currency, that means in the, the local currency that devalues, there's a terrible effect on the economy. Terrible effect on the economy, including oil economy. Including oil economies, but anyway, oil is a different question. I mean, I, 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 I just not—it's not, it's not uh, simply the same matter uh, like your uh, primary materials, like you know, countries exporting cotton, countries exporting copper, you know, metals and all things. So one is this whole export-dependent economies, and there's a fall of global prices. It goes. Number three, number three. The Southeast Asian crisis is very instructive in the sense to follow. In 1997, there's Southeast Asian crisis, a number of Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia, Thailand, you know, they're all touched by this crisis. Taiwan, huh? Philippines, uh, yeah, they were all touched and they were seeking. You know, what happened? Production did not fall in any of these countries. Production was running normal. People were working. Production was there. But the point is that in the meantime, what something had happened was the call the convertibility of currencies. So suddenly the value because of speculation and this not now historically if you look at the currency convertibility, you know, it ought to be like what a dollar can buy in New York and what is the equivalent that I can buy with Indian rupees. That's how it should be fed. But over a period of time, there's been a tremendous speculation, like with any other primary materials speculation of a currency. So now the currency rates are decided on the demand and supply in the speculative market. Not whether, you know, India is lacking rupee or whatever. It doesn't have sufficient dollars or whatever. And that becomes minor because uh, it's a dated statistics. Uh, I can cite uh, something from the end 90s when there was, uh, at that point of time, it was seen the volume of speculation was nine to 10 times there are actual transactions. Now, what do you mean by that? That means that, the, I mean, for example, if you say, take Indian rupee to US dollar. So the US dollar and Indian rupees, those type of transactions are made in a real economy where you, know, you buy with dollars, you sell in dollars, you buy in rupees and sell it, all the things. And you have a buying and selling of INR USD, that's a code, USD INR, which was nine to 10 times, and I believe with a huge uncontrolled growth of capital markets, the ratio will be much more now. I'm just intrigued while speaking to you to look at the current figures. And, uh, you know, and this has been done because there's no capital control. I can sit in India and I can just have a computer and I can get into any stock exchange and do currency trade. So that impacts, that, that impacts the Southeast Asian currency. The Malaysian ringgit was falling, falling like anything. So suddenly George Soros, who had a huge stock of Malaysian currency, ringgit, he started selling it. And started dumping it like anything, and overnight the value fell down. So these are various things. And, and then you have, of course, the war and many other effects which accuse debt. So this is a whole game of the, I think there are many more, many, many more to it. But so, so the whole question of IMF and uh, the World Bank, the primarily it's a lending business. These are not development banks, these are live lending agencies. And I'll, I'll come to a second clarification why they're even worse than you know, commercial enterprises, for example, the Citibank or other banks. So I'll come to that. So there was a huge, uh, so they create, debt, they create debt as a mechanism to put forward policies which suits the capitalist class. Of course, you know, if you look at the IMF, it depends on the shares. The US has the most number of shares, the IMF and the World Bank. So it's, it's, it has the largest, Hegemony over the IMF and the World Bank. But of course, the Indian local elites are, their futures are inextricably bound with uh, the American ruling class, or the European ruling class. The interest is not bound with the American working class. The interest is bound with the American working, ruling class. So they have their own benefits as well in pushing forward these things. Otherwise, there are several ways to resist. 
There are certain instances of history where debts have been canceled, debts have been default, uh, repudiated. But why don't the countries of the third world don't not take that part? Because the ruling class has an interest absolutely tied with the interest of the IMF and the World Bank, which is the interest of the imperialist court, of the ruling class of the imperialist court. So what I mean to say, the IMF, the World Bank is equally oppressive for the working class in the United States, for the working class. And the IMF, it doesn't care about your subprime lending business, what happened in the United States. It doesn't care about the student debt, what's happening. Thank you so much for that. That's a fantastic answer. And with that, I'd, I'd like to dive a little bit more into how the IMF and the World Bank you know, have created so many crises throughout the world. So can you talk a little bit more about some of the ones that you're following right now? You mentioned Sri Lanka. I can also think of Lebanon as another example. Yeah, 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 yeah. Argentina. So yeah, just walk us through some of the worst examples of, of the IMF and the World Bank imposing uh, debt crises on third world nations. There are many. There are many, my friend, and I'll, I'll, I'll actually, uh, one of our comrades uh, who was one of the founders, Eric Toussaint, uh, he, uh, he did a book uh, on the 50 years of the World Bank, and now he has uh, this book, we're getting it from Pluto Press, uh, which is coming out, uh, it's already come out in French, uh, 76 world, uh, years of uh, the World Bank, so of the twins, World Bank and IMF, and there are many cases, a series of cases that IMF has, Indonesia, it has been behind the most corrupt and authoritarian leaders, rulers, dictators, they supported dictators like anything. Otherwise, how could you believe that Mobutu, who was a corporal in the Congolese army, could be, you know, amass such an immense wealth with the collusion of the international banks and the capitalist countries? So, the, I mean, if you take the case of Sri Lanka, now, Sri Lanka has been in perpetual debt crisis for long. You know, the three, three major economic earnings, foreign exchange earnings from Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka, let me tell you that once upon a time, it used to have human indicators, uh, which were the best in South Asia. Uh, and thanks to, there are different issues. Uh, let's not digress to it. But thanks to progressive policies led by a series of uh, uh, politicians at a point of time and, uh, of the Lanka Samasamaj party, let's not digress to it. But uh, we're now vilified. We're now vilified by the right-wing press in Sri Lanka itself. Huh? Currently vilified. So, uh, but then Sri Lanka started getting into this whole import business. Huh? Export substitution was done away with. Sri Lanka is one of the countries to adopt neoliberalism, one of the earliest to adopt neoliberalism in South Asia. I remember, I recall in 78, they started the free trade zone and all such stuff, and which was basically allowing, uh, doing away with capital controls and many other controls deregulated economy, and then they got into, uh, they got rid of the import substitution policies. When I was a child in India, import was highly regulated. Any foreign imported stuff was scarce. It's not available. But then it's all changed now with the imposition of neoliberalism and you know about how the IMF imposed, of course, with the collusion of Indian leaders in 91, because India faced a balance of payment crisis in 91. It had to mortgage gold with the IMF and the IMF and World Bank. IMF took absolute advantage and it came with the policy prescriptions of, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> doing away with the regu regulations of the economy. So that's what happened in India. And what is the result of that? It's tremendous inequality. It's tremendous inequality in spite of a miraculous economic growth. So, for example, 50s and 60s, we used to assume huh, that was uh, what the, what the uh, perception in our places of the world, that we are poor countries and we don't have enough, we don't produce enough uh, to feed our population or whatever, whatever huh? provide a dignified living for our population. But if you see in the last three decades and look at the economic growth that's happening, so there's a surplus which is happening. The surplus which is happening year after year that have been sufficient to wipe out poverty, not only in India, but the whole of South Asia. But why doesn't it happen? It's because a very small section of the population was actually benefited by it, and not this was not done in the interest of the whole population. This was capitalists who wanted to profit. Okay, now coming back to Sri Lanka, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll go to more examples in Sri Lanka, Greece, and other I mean, a number of examples. So in Sri Lanka, it is it 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 went away from the import substitution policies, and it now they have three major foreign exchange earners. One is of course your tea exports. Second is tourism, and the third is 
you know, money which is sent uh, by expatriates, the Sri Lankans working in Gulf and many other places, remittances, what we call as remittances. So uh, Sri Lanka went into a series of uh, uh, foreign exchange crisis, uh, forex crisis, and there has been till date 16 agreements with the IMF. And they're going for the 17th agreement. The negotiations are currently on in Washington, D.C. And now 16 agreements with the IMF. Every time there was an agreement with the IMF, IMF imposed conditionalities. First is uh, you change the tax structure completely. So earlier, I mean, you know what is progressive taxation? You know, tax the rich more. And one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, one of the facets of uh, progressive taxation is, of course, you have more direct tax than indirect tax. Now, indirect tax is value-added tax, the general sales tax, or whatever, you know, because it affects the whole of the population, even beggars. Beggars in the streets, they also pay the indirect tax. But direct tax is paid by people who have, like wealth tax, property tax, taxes on direct income, taxes of corporations, taxes levied on corporations. So currently, with the IMF, 16 IMF prescriptions and many other things to do, Sri Lanka has one of the worst tax ratios. Huh? It has a 15 person direct tax and 85% indirect tax. Ideally, ideally, it should be 70-30. 70% direct tax and 30% indirect tax. Uh, see the Nordic examples. I'm not speaking of some socialism or something like that. I'm speaking of Nordic social democracy. The, uh, the Belgian social democracy, the Dutch social democracy, this was the ideal thing. Now it has moved away from that and then there's a terrible tax cut. And every time Sri Lanka was forced to open its economy, it, you know, forced to uh, commercialize, uh, commercialize its, uh, its, its, uh, uh, its basic services, water, sanitation, health, housing, which are basic necessities for survival. So it was supposed to, uh, you know, levy user charge and various things in that. And in spite of 16 IMF uh, agreements, it has not been able to come out of the debt. Now, let's take uh, the example of Greece, for example. You know the Greek debt and all of this. Now, how did Greece get into a debt? See, the Greeks went into a debt because when they organized this Olympics in 2004 in Athens, the Greek government went into a reckless borrowing from the French and German commercial banks. Now, what happened? The Greek government entered into a debt. It was not, I mean, we, we will come to the lender's complicity and other things. You know, why we indict uh, the IMF for the World Bank? Because you know that people can't pay and you're, instead, in spite of that, you are just you know, lending money under some predicts or the other. So you have a complicity, you know? And I'll, I'll come, how is it different for commercial money? So in case of Greeks, uh, money was just pumped in like anything. It was a racket, basically. And then this, the, 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 the loan, outstanding loan of the German and the French commercial banks was bought over by the European Central Bank. The ECB, the, the Troika, used to call it the Troika, the IMF, the ECB, and the European Investment Bank. This was bought over by them. And then what had been a loan to private commercial banks, in order to save the private commercial banks, it became a sovereign debt. Now you, you can you can understand that logic, huh? you can understand the trick inside that, because private commercial banks are not in a position to dictate your fiscal policies, to dictate your politics. Well, the European Central Bank, IMF, and others are in a position to even investment bank. They're in a position to do so. Now that is how the Greek debt started all again. And European banks, uh, central banks, they lend. I mean, so now let me come to this uh, point. Uh, we can go on more examples. Go on. You can, we can, I can speak about Ukraine also. Very interesting Ukrainian issue. So what happened is that, uh, for example, say I am a banker and I lend you, you know, typically for a business. So I have to check your viability of the business, whether it's, it's, it's worth lending you the money. You want to start an airline. So I have to look into the viability of the business. And if you fail, I fail. That's the reason bankers who evaluate are paid so much of money. That's the reason to take the risk. Now, what happens to sovereign debt? The World Bank lends to projects, but as a sovereign guarantee from the state. Now, when the project fails, it doesn't matter to the World Bank. 
your sovereign guarantee, you're forced to pay that money from your coffers, which is basically taxpayers' money. Because there's a sovereign guarantee. And this has happened. A series of this has happened for the World Bank. And I have lent to state. It doesn't stand to, uh, I mean, uh, it doesn't lend for projects now. So it's happened for the World Bank, which is actually another bank, but it puts the name of development for a degree of legitimacy around. But it's like commercial lending. It does commercial lending without commercial risks. I mean, risks are an essential part of banking business, and that's the reason they take the risk. I mean, they charge you the interest. It's on the risks. But the World Bank doesn't carry that risk. So this has been the nature, and uh, you know, currently we are facing another debt crisis because of the, uh, you know, the economic crisis uh, due to the pandemic and uh, all of the things. So, uh, so uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's getting to a very, very bad situation. There was something called the DSSI and the, the debt suspension initiative and all these things. That's nothing compared to what's required. The countries, you'll see more of this Argentina, Sri Lanka, and Ukraine happening in the days to come. There'll be one trigger and it's gone. They're on the brink. They're on the brink. A number of countries have very, very high debt to GDP ratio. Uh, we're talking about Mozambique, which is almost on the brink of a default. Uh, Ghana is another case in the point. Lebanon, say, Lebanon. But even if you don't see it in such dangerous proportions, a lot of countries are facing a current account crisis because, you know, exports have been very limited in this whole two years. It's going to affect a lot of South American countries. It's going to affect many Asian countries. Of course, going to affect many African countries. Well, I would also like to talk a little bit more about how it actually begins, you know, and, and with that, I think I was reading a little bit of some of the documents on the website and talking as well about, in particular, development aid um, and, you know, how development aid is, is really like a sort of a Trojan horse uh, for a lot of these programs that I have to come in. So can you talk a little bit more about how Western, you know, imperialist uh, institutions like the IMF and the World Bank use development aid as a mechanism by which to go into these countries, take over, basically take over the country uh, and various economic institutions within um, and, and how this has played a role in, you know, completely underdeveloping these countries. But underdevelopment is for many reasons. I mean, and the World Bank and IMF continues to uh, keep it like that. Now, let me clarify one thing is uh, actually currently, uh, it's very difficult to say in black and white between countries, except a few countries, because you know, uh, you have a degree of a north in the south as well. I can say that in India, a section of the population has much better living standards than the American population. I mean, the American working class or the European working so there's an elite with interest is tied with the elite of the world. And, and, and that's how the capitalists are united in their whole thing. That's the reason you don't see any division between them, except in certain places where there's a political difference. Like at, uh, at this point of time happening between the NATO and, the, and Putin. Uh, that's another story. Uh, okay. So in terms of development aid, what they have done is in, in terms of when they push development aid, uh, this is actually, it, it, there's very little uh, study to show that it has facilitated development the way they were claimed. Uh, rather, it has pushed policies which have acted in the interest of the ruling classes. Now, what do they do with development? I, I, remember, I remember a personal experience uh, when I was staying in Bombay, you know, 17, 16, 17 years back. <clears throat> the World Bank suddenly came out the development aid in the field of water. And what they were doing, the initial that aid was to do a study in one of the one of the one of the part of the parts of the city, yeah? Like your boroughs at one part of the city, one of the wards of the city. And the K East Ward, what they're doing, they were doing a pilot project on how to prioritize water. In terms of you know turning I mean, converting into a very efficient water supply, 24 into 7, that was a slogan, 24 into 7 water supply. They were doing a consultancy how to privatize water. So, most of the aids have been conditional in pushing certain policy or the other. Now, look at the, in, in different sectors, the energy in World Bank. Now, if you look at the World Bank and the other quote-unquote uh, development banks, they have uh, 
the portfolio is separate. For example, the World Bank is in water. The Asian Development Bank is, uh, 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 specializes in energy, specializes in roads, specializes in many other things. So their portfolios are different. They don't compete between themselves. They don't compete between them. They want us to compete between ourselves for the race to the bottom. So whenever, whenever there's an aid, they follow similar policy prescription. Flexibilization of labor. No? So you say so much of manpower is waste. You don't need so many people. You need to have an iron piece when employing people. So, so you know, make them no work, no pay. So they work. They're very efficient. I mean, this whole uh, rubbish about the private efficiency of private corporations, the inefficiency of state owned the public sector. I mean, the whole logic is presented in a. It's very sugar coated. It's very sugar coated. Um, and uh, you know, presented. So all this, uh, if you look at the aid which started the Marshall Plan, this is the first aid that uh, the Western countries uh, after the war they started uh, in order to counteract the, uh, the impact of Soviet Union, the attractiveness of Soviet Union and Soviet foreign policy. Basically to checkmate Soviet foreign policy. Uh, now what they did was, uh, uh, what they did was uh, they devised a Marshall Plan. A Marshall Plan was partially uh, basically dictating policies also. Now, there are substantial studies which shows that whatever they have give, given in the uh, official development assistance, ODA, very small, nothing, very small, that they have enormous, built enormous policy benefits in doing so with the help of the Marshall Plan. So Marshall Plan was one side was a more of a pretension huh? that we care for the third world, we take care for the people, we care for the poor people of the world, we care for the marginalized, vulnerable people. But it was actually used, you know, it's camouflaged under certain things, but it's actually used to intervene in policy prescriptions in different places. And that went in hand in hand with the US you know, military invasion, that was military coup, CIA, and many things. <laughs> and Marshall Plan was one of them, a very, very, very powerful instrument. Which looked benign, huh? So it played a very important role, huh, in, in terms of and the IMF and the World Bank. There, uh, for example, you know, there's something called the IMF and the World Bank. This technical assistance. As you look at the technical assistance, the IMF and the World Bank will tell you who are the consultants, and much of the money lent by them will go back. Actually, there are a number of instances in cases of loans that the money lent has actually gone back to the lenders. The local leaders, local politicians, the local elites has skimmed off a percentage of, 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 of the transaction, of course. It's done with the collusion of the local elites, the local ruling class, and the population suffers, which keeps on paying the debt several times, many more times. I mean, if you look at Africa, for example, you know, one of the most uh, debt-ridden countries in the world, if you look at the number of people who were trafficked from Africa, look at the huge amount of trafficking that started in Africa, whole slave trade. There's immense loss. Africa doesn't owe to the world. The world owes to them. The imperial powers owe to Africa. The governments of the United States, or the European governments, which had started all the slave trade and, you know, whole plantation business, slave trade, etc., etc., etc. They owe to Africa. The Africans don't owe to them. Look at the amount of trafficking done. How do you, how do you, you know, valorize that? How do you put that into value? And not only that, if you look at the loans, now wants to be wants to look at the loans and you know and look at the case in point, you'll see it has been paid several times. The foreign loans have been paid several times, yet they still continue to be unpaid. And there's, of course, the loans are not restricted to the World Bank and IMF. There's a host of private players. For example, BlackRock, commercial lenders. Now look at the, I mean, let's bring the case of Sri Lanka. The Sri Lankan government borrowed on reckless, borrowed on projects. Now the project did not turn out. You could not realize 10% of the revenue that was estimated. So you have a loss, but you have to pay, pay your lenders. So what do you do? You have a current account deficit. Naturally, you have to pay more money than you earn, the foreign currency than you earn. So it started borrowing from commercial institutions as well. So 35% of Sri Lanka's debt is to commercial institutions. 
Now, what has been the IMF doing all these years? It did not advise the Sri Lankan government, no, no, don't go to commercial institutions. You are getting into deep trouble. Getting into a deep trouble. Where was the IMF? Where was the World Bank? When the Sri Lankan government did all the reckless borrowing. Even now, even now, they are in a negotiation with the IMF, and I forget the name of the person who has been a, uh, uh, I just saw this morning an interview. In fact, there's an interview of this person six months back. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you the name. Huh? You can just allow me uh, just look at my interview and I'll tell you. Uh, this guy who's uh, actually negotiating the debt uh, is one of the negotiators. I think he's, the Sri Lankan government has advised uh, for, uh, advertised for the position of an advisor and he's going to apply that. There's this guy called Lee Bukhait. This guy called Lee Bukhait, who was, uh, I think he is one of the, uh, <clears throat> uh, he was one of this uh, uh, Chicago guys, and uh, he was uh, speaking somewhere as an economist, as an advisor to the World Bank. And he has, and I saw his CV that he was famous in debt restructuring. And all the places he has talked is actually horrendous stories of debt trap and nothing else. One needs to write a, a good biography of this guy. Uh, I hope it's crying. A good biography is crying out. Someone needs to do a biography of this guy and see wherever he's, he's intervened. Actually, he's intervened in the situation. He's created a situation. Now, this guy, six months before, there's a video on the YouTube that I was watching this morning. He was pronouncing that he can look into the Sri Lanka debt problem. So the die was cut at that point of time. We did not know about what is Sri Lanka going through or it's going to burst open and explode in such a position. It's going to default. No, it was not foretold in that manner six months before. We know the situation. We knew, many of us knew the situation was not so good, but this guy knew everything about it, what Sri Lankan government did. This is an interview not of yesterday, not a day before yesterday, not a month back. This is an interview six months back, so it was all prepared. So these are the types that IMF follow and how they look at it. The Sri Lankan government is for the 17th agreement, the bail, they will privatize. So what do you do? You sell state-owned assets. You make people work harder, earn less. I mean, if you tax them more than... I mean, you make people work harder. These are the standard prescriptions that goes on. So there's an impoverishment at multiple levels. So as a human being, of course, you are, and of course, when, you, when, 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 when your taxpayers' money is, the nation is. But mind it, what is the differentiate between the categories of citizenship? We have the business classes, both in the North and both in the South. Not everybody in the South is in the economy class. The people in the business class as well, who has immensely benefited with his operations of the World Bank and all. I don't know if it satisfies your question. Yeah, that, that's a great answer. And with that, I, I would like to maybe extend a little bit further and ask you about the the H uh, the HIPC program, the heavily indebted poor countries program. Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is a great example if you want to talk a little bit more about this of, you know, an attempt yeah. to ease the debt, but doesn't do anything. Yeah. HIPIC was an initiative. It was heavily indebted in four countries. It started the World Bank back in 2002 or 2003. Forget at this point of time, because, you know, HIPIC is so much consigned in the dustbins of history. It was a major headline event, but it got consigned in the dustbins of history very soon. 2002, 2004, we don't remember about it. We don't recall about it because it was so insignificant in terms of contributions. It was actually nothing. It was actually nothing in terms of the claims and it did not, uh, it did not. I mean, one indicator, I mean, we look at the countries, heavily indebted poor countries, which were, uh, I forget the list, some 40 countries or something like that. I should prepare myself because I don't talk about it for more than a decade. So naturally, I mean, uh, I've got uh, lost much of the details. But if you look at the HIPIC countries, the countries which were intended beneficiaries of the HIPIC loan, of 54 countries, I can correct myself and look into documents and correct myself. But you look at the condition of the country, they're still in the debt. None of them do have a prosperous economy. The same is about the DSSI, the recently done. Debt suspension initiative because of the pandemic. So HIPIC is one of the top projects that has done little good, it's done more bad because HIPIC as an initiative was used to open up the economies of those countries, privatize, 
most of the things, you know, you convert the public assets built over the years, you convert the public assets, you do a loot of the public assets because the public assets are sold. Now, HIPIC doesn't come as doesn't come free. Those are not freebies, quote unquote freebies. It was not just money distributed or suddenly say that you no, know, so much of a uh, billion um, trillion dollars is written off. It comes with a series of prescriptions as well. You ought to do this, you ought to do that. That has happened is the Norwegian government in 2006, if I may recall, uh, canceled the debt of six countries. Then, thanks to the efforts of the Norwegian civil society, there is still an organization called SLUG, which was campaigning for the cancellation of Norwegian debt. And the Norwegian government canceled the debt of six countries, including Egypt, Ghana, and others. And it said that this money was not lent for the development of the countries, of the recipients, but it was done to revive the ailing shipping industry of Norway. So it was one of the instances of debt cancellation when the Norwegian government canceled dates and, you know, well, thanks to the uh, vibrant civil society movement in Norway, thanks to a comrades from Slug, uh, that was done. Uh, otherwise, there's, well, of course, there's debt cancellation. The right? United States have canceled one of the recent most debts. The United States have canceled the Iraqi debt after they invaded Iraq. Why? Because most of the debt, it wanted to start a level playing field, and most of the debt was towards the Anglo-French companies, German companies, a lot of European money. In, uh, so they decided to force the Paris Club members to come into an agreement to cancel the debt, because in Iraq, they wanted to start on a clean slate. And similar historic systems are found, you know? When the US took over Cuba from the Spanish, 1898, well, they said, no, we're not going to pay you anything. Cuba's debt is gone. The conscious, well, the conscious debt cancellation that you've seen on the other side, of course, the foremost example is the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks. This was the uh, Petrograd um, Economic Manifesto. I say that, oh, we will not pay any of that debt. They face a lot of things. The states are, in fact, there are parallels which are coming to the market at this point of time uh, with uh, all the Sri Lanka questions and all these things, willful default and all these questions. Uh, that, you know, we are seeing a specter of Bolshevism because the Bolsheviks can cancel the debt. And they faced enormous consequences. We know about the White War, the Civil War. One of the reasons of the Civil War was the Bolsheviks were not ready to pay the Zad debt. They're surrounded by 14 countries, mostly traitors. Uh, this is not so, I mean, it, 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 we don't find a lot of discussion or a lot of literature materials around it in history, but this is very important. We know a lot about the Russian Civil War between 18 and the NAP and all the things, of course. It's much debated subject, uh, much discussed, much debated, uh, many inspirational things, and so uh, many other things. But uh, um, the, uh, the unilateral suspension of the debt by the Bolsheviks is not so talked about, there's not a, much of a literature around it, and which also provoked uh, attack on Soviet Union. By recent time, the Ecuadorian government had actually done a lot of uh, but a few examples of countries actually politically doing it, while there are ways and means of doing it. So what, what, what this uh, World Bank and the IMF, uh, they do, uh, they of course look at the debt sustainability, because they don't want the debt, uh, the racket of debt to explode beyond the point, because then, then you might face popular revolt, which will start challenging the hegemony, the question, the question, their policies. That's there. That's of course there. What they do is actually looking at debt sustainability. That the entity or the country and the entity as a payer is in a position to do so. You don't kill it. You don't, you know, provoke a sort of a reaction from the popular masses uh, where their own politics is a challenge. Yeah, one can look into that one. If one has to sum up, they look into uh, more into debt sustainability. So you hear a lot of talks about the IMF, uh, about debt sustainability. You, know, you, you see the IMF, uh, uh, you know, uh, a number of IMF papers, in fact, in the last two years during the pandemic, has warned about an impending uh, debt catastrophe which can develop. That's not from the point of view of the, of, the, of the popular classes in the global south. That's not from the point of view of the working class in the global south. 
This point of view of the ruling classes of the global south and the global north, they're looking at debt sustainability. I said, my friend, hey guy, don't get it beyond a point. Don't let it explode. Don't let it provoke a popular rebellion. That's the whole management uh, policy for us. Thank you. And I'd like to ask too about the, the alternatives to this. So, you know, there has been a bunch of writing from uh, CADTM about the alternatives, a bank for the global south, uh, yep. averting this, relaunching the uh, the global anti the anti globalization movement across the world. Uh, so, can you talk to me a little bit about the solutions of that ETM proposes? Yeah, yeah. The solution is multi layered. No, I mean, well, loans are necessary. Loans are not essentially debt. People need resources. Huh? Just as children need food. Huh? You don't ask your children. I mean, the children to go and earn. I mean, they need food to grow up. So, loans are necessary. Financial and non financial resources are of course necessary. But these are not synonymous with debt. It doesn't mean a debt. Loans are not debts. So it has to be. Now, now, now how do you start with it? I mean, the uh, so first thing is to identify the level of debt. Right? We classify them into illegitimate, illegal, unsustainable, odious, and various things. Now, with these definitions, you come to know that what would be the clue to answers. One of the one of the things that we one of the things that we advocate and campaign for is a citizens debt audit, audit committee. I talked talk to you about the Ecuadorian and the Greek example. We'd be happy to have more and more people coming forward for a citizenship audit committee to look into the debt, look into the um, you know, complicity of the various uh, actors in fostering debt, in accumulating such huge amounts of debt. Now, uh, what we look into, uh, uh, the Bank of the South was a very concrete effort. Unfortunately, it didn't materialize. That's a different. It, 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 it was also dependent on the political fortunes of Latin America. So when there was a wave in Latin America, it went in a positive direction, but then it, the wave went on in a different direction. You had the end of things tight or whatever. Uh, so uh, the Bank of the South idea did not materialize. So number one, let's look at it not as a lending agency, but as a common pool of resources. So it's not a permanent lending business. It's a pool of resources for where you take money and where you pay back. It's not, you know, keeping certain countries uh, indebted for generations and ages and decades. Number two, number two, that all this loan should respect various principles of human rights and environment. Number two, no lending can be done overriding human rights and environmental considerations. Number two. Number three, you don't have a bureaucratic structure. The World Bank is a huge bureaucratic structure. If you look at the Washington DC office, it's more than 700 uh, you know, highly paid people there, sitting there, there are different offices. So you don't have a bureaucratic structure. Number three, these are basically, I mean, uh, uh, basic areas what we are looking into. And it's not a lending mechanism. It's a common resource pool. You need the money. You and you know the interest rates will be based on what you need to run that organization. What you need to sustain that organization. If you if you have other mechanisms to sustain that organization, where states can actually pull in money to run the basic uh, the machinery, then you don't need interest also in that case. So it, you know you're looking at something more of a cooperative rather than a permanent lending mechanism. And, and this is true. Historically, this has been true, I mean, not between nations, even in society, even different societies. And what was the most successful cooperative? It was not done in the interest of the pop. I mean, it was not done with a very progressive idea. You look at the Israeli cooperative that happened. I mean, I mean, so the motivations are different. The political uh, implications are very different of what they wanted to do. It wanted to create a reactionary power. That's the reason it it was so socialistic within. I mean, I mean, egalitarian within. So that's a different question. I'm, I'm not valorizing the state of Israel or its foreign policies or domination of the creation of Israel, nothing, nothing. But look at the Israeli policies. You study the Israeli policies after the creation of the nation in 49, 50, 51, 52. At one side, they were doing a war and they were preparing the population because large number section of the population was refugees coming from East Europe and many other parts of Europe. Look in cooperative. 
to look at corporate history in terms of the corporate and just not uh, just not to just not to motivate people to build uh, many more Israels. I mean, we'd be very happy to build many more Vietnams, but not Israels, uh, of course. But uh, uh, the whole idea is you have a, a, a you have a, a pool of resources. Uh, many other things, including common currencies. I mean, uh, you see many countries. I mean, I mean uh, South Asia, for example, doesn't have a. Uh, we advocate the creation of a single currency within South Asia. We advocate the creation of more trade within South Asia. South Asian countries trade more with the uh, triad that the United States, the Western Europe, and Japan, rather than trading between themselves. So it, it, it follows with a series of other uh, um, other other measures uh, to 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 combat the distortions that are already in place in case of commerce and case of many other things, trade, commerce, many other things. Human migration, well, everything. Well, it has to be comprehensive. Adam. Well, thank you. And I wonder if there's anything else uh, worth mentioning. Um, any of the work that the uh, CADTM is doing right now um, that we should know about that you, that you want to inform people listening about? Uh, we, we are we are we are heavily engaged in uh, in, uh, in Argentina, as I told you, engaged in Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan Day campaign. Uh, I don't know. I'll give you uh, uh, some interview that I took of Eric and where he's actually saying no to IMF. I don't know. I can send it to you. I'll send you the link. Huh? Uh, we just did on Ukraine also. So we're intervening in the case of Ukraine also. The Ukrainian uh, civil society and the debt cancellation activists have called for our help. Uh, so we are trying to do whatever, whatever, whatever uh, things we can do to support their calls. Uh, that doesn't valorize the Ukrainian ruling class. We're very critical about the oligarchs, which has led Ukraine to a point of uh, take your money like anything. And uh, the Ukrainian oligarchs at this point of time is interested to repudiate. They don't want to pay the Russian debt, but they want to continue with every other debt that, that's part of the world. And the Russian debt is very, very, very small. It's only 3 billion USD. I'll send you the articles you'll get about it, and I'll keep you updated about it. So we are engaged in the, of course, we are engaged in full sovereignty movements. We're engaged in many other things. We're engaged in North Africa. Uh, we are engaged in uh, Kenya at this point of time. I mean, uh, this is active intervention on the ground. So we are in, engaged in Kenya at this point of time. As Kenya is uh, releasing euro bonds and some other things. So we have tried to putting up a court case and you know, gathering documents, trying to put up the comrades there. Unfortunately, we could not travel much. We could not hold face-to-face -face meetings. And sometimes it becomes difficult without doing that. Uh, so these are uh, different areas where we are engaged. Uh, so we are, we are, we, uh, in fact, in Sri Lanka earlier also, we, we were engaged uh, on the question of uh, uh, microcredit debt. And then the UN Special Rapporteur uh, at that point of time, a person called uh, uh, Slavsky, Bahos Slavsky in Argentine, uh, who was the UN Rapporteur on uh, 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 debt and human rights or something like that. I forget, I'm sorry. Uh, so we had a coordination before we visited that. With Sri Lanka, then a, a Sri Lankan comrade submitted a memorandum uh, praising about the situation, also what needs to be done. And he came up with certain recommendations. Uh, and then after that, the Sri Lankan government uh, forced the microwave companies to reduce that rate of interest, but still very high. It was exorbitant, just killing at the point of time. So these are a set of uh, uh, engagements. And you can always find it on our website as well. We try to keep the website as updated as possible. Uh, so. You know about our engagement and uh, also in general issues around. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, the work that the CADTM does is, is incredible. Uh, it's one of the best organizations advocating for abolishing all debt, which is should be the goal of any movement now for the global south. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joseph. It's really uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you. And I'd like to say finally that uh, the, the goal uh, or the dream of the abolition of debt is also connected to abolition of the current system, that's capitalism. As long as capitalism is there, you will see such things recurring. So it's a common fight. Eh? Thanks. Nice speaking to you. And just keep on, keep on posting us if you have interesting materials. We would like to very much get connected with the US, uh, US student debt movement. Absolutely. Right. You know, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. give us materials, give us materials, publish on our website. You tell us if we need to assist you in something, in raising a campaign, doing anything, or any sort of expertise that we have. Huh? Mm. I told you, we're not an ex expert. We're not a think tank, but whatever expertise we have, we'll be happy to share with uh, anyone. Great. Thank you so much. And, and absolutely. Thanks. Canceling students. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.